appreciate that, Mike. Thank you. Even though you took a swipe at me and called me flawed. Oh, my gosh. That's mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for those of you that uh, have a Bible, we encourage you to open up to uh, the book of John, chapter 1. Those of you that don't have a Bible, I encourage you to look around uh, in the pews in front of you. There should be a, a Bible there. We have uh, several um, throughout the, kind of the audience, and uh, you should be able to find one you guys can, uh, can use. Uh, we're in John chapter 1. It's a familiar passage. I, I know it's familiar to me. I've preached it a number of times. I've even preached it a few times here. Um, every Christmas, we always ask, you know, what are we going to speak on? Every Christmas, it's always a, <clears throat> a Christmas-themed message. And uh, we're now in the full in the Advent season, the second week of Advent. And um, you ask, well, Pastor, what are you going to be preaching on? I'm going to be preaching on the Christmas story, right? That's pretty easy. Um, but I thought maybe this year that we could spend the next couple weeks, um, three actually, uh, leading up to uh, Christmas Eve, which will be the last Sunday um, of Advent. Um, and uh, just talking about uh, first uh, John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be mostly in there, and I'll be drawing some other texts in, I'll be dealing with some other stuff, but for the most part, I really want to stick with John chapter 1. And I think the reason why, and we started this off with the kids, we are talking about light and what's so precious about light. Light truly is an amazing thing, and you'll find in John's gospel um, that the, the imagery of light and darkness is addressed pretty consistently all throughout the book. And it's a phenomenal book that does contrast that light and dark feeling. You know, John was the last one to write, the last gospel writer to write. In fact, um, those of you that study uh, uh, the New Testament will, will be the first one to say, well, pastor, the book of John's not really a gospel. Well, we call it the Gospel of John, yeah, but we call it erroneously that. We actually have three what we call synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those give a synopsis of the life of Christ, and they're pretty compatible. You can look in Matthew, and Matthew will complete, will, will, will complete some of Mark's thoughts, and Mark sometimes will begin the discussion, and Luke will carry it on, and you get a, a good synopsis of the life of Christ from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John is a whole other animal. It's a whole other thing. It's, it's a standalone book that John wrote in the end of his life. Near, He was like 90-something years old when he wrote this. He was the last living person that was able to, that we know of, that was, that was in and around Jesus during his ministry. He was the final disciple to be alive. All the rest of them had been killed off long before now. John was well into his, 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 his ancient days, and he wanted to have a final word, if you will. He already knew about Matthew. He had read, I'm sure, Mark's account. He was well-versed with Luke, but he wanted to put a final point. He wanted to give us some things that maybe we didn't have. His overriding concern was found, actually, at the end of the book. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these things are written that you might believe. That's his goal. John wrote his gospel, his book, with the idea that he wanted us to believe. And not just believe for the heck of it, but to believe in order that we might truly have salvation, that we might truly be able to be called the sons and daughters of God. That's the focus. That's the goal that John is writing. He's also writing because the one thing that Matthew and Mark and Luke do, they don't do as good a job as John does, is bringing out the divine nature of Christ. We know that 
that Jesus was, com- was completely man and completely God at the same time. But there was some dissension that had arisen among that early church. There were some discussions. There were actually people out there that were complaining. They were saying there's no way that Jesus came in physical form because Jesus was perfect. And perfection and the physical form can't inhabit together. And they were trying to teach that Jesus was some spirit that sort of traipsed around and everybody just sort of got to know the spirit of Jesus, but Jesus didn't actually exist. And John's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I beg to differ. And you notice that oftentimes in his gospel where he writes it. He actually doesn't bring himself in by name, but he often defines himself as the one who laid his head on the chest of Jesus. You ever wonder why he said that? Because he wanted people to know that Jesus was real, that he was able to lay his head on Jesus' chest, that he was able to be that close. He was able to touch him and feel him and experience him and smell him. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? But he wanted us to know. That's the whole thing. So when he starts, he starts it off, and he could have started off like Luke did. He could have said, now the birth of Jesus was like this. He could have started off like Matthew by saying that the, the genealogy of Christ is thus. But instead, he wanted to take it in a whole new direction. He said, you know something? Let's get this back to the beginning of the beginning. Let's take it right back to the very essence of who Jesus was. And you see it right there in, the, in, in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He just throws it right out there. It's the prelude, we call it, but it's a beautiful thing. Now, those of you that have been students of, uh, of, of Greek, and I know we've got a whole bunch of you out there, right? Everybody, everybody loves to study Greek because it's a fun language to really just sink your teeth into. Well, I'm being facetious. I know not everybody enjoys it. But if you were to take on the study of Greek, and I know Liz is back there thinking to herself, that's, that's something I want to do, right? Now the kids are all gone. You've got all this extra time in your hand. Forget about quilting and cleaning and doing all the fun stuff. You want to take on Greek, right? That'd be fun. Well, if you were to do that, more than likely what they would do is they would pull out the Gospel of John. Of John. And they would take you through the Gospel of John because the beauty of John is that the Greek is incredibly simple. It's incredibly easy to understand, except for the fact that it's incredibly complex and deep, too, at the same time. Now, that's a mystery, and it's hard to understand it until you really get into it. The Greek is simple, but it's deceptively simple. And you're going to see that in a few minutes as we go through this, as we start to look at, at this light concept. Now, you notice right in the beginning, it says, in the beginning was the word. And he throws this out there like it's just commonplace. And everybody that's in Christendom knows this. Everybody that's been studying the scripture for, well, the last 2,000 years would say, oh, yeah, he's talking about Jesus. That's easy. The word. Yeah, that's Jesus because it says it. And the word was with God. The word was God and all the word stuff. And we say, oh, yeah. And if you really get funny, I know, Eric, when you're sitting around changing tires and working with the Alieska guys, oftentimes the topic of the logos comes up, right? I mean, that's like, that's like fireside chat talk, right? We're just, oh, yeah, because we love talking about the logos, right? Because that's the Greek word for word is logos. And we oftentimes would love to throw this out there So um, because we talk about, well, no, obviously we don't. But in John's day, they did. 
See, the concept of logos was very popular among them. It had been picked up by the secular philosophers, and they were throwing this idea out that logos, this spirit of wisdom, was moving through the world. Aristotle loved it. Plato loved it. All the smart guys thought it was just great because they loved to sort of personify the spirit of wisdom. Some of them even tried to do that with the Bible. They tried to pull in the the book of um, uh, Proverbs, and they tried to say that Proverbs is talking about this, this feminine spirit of wisdom. Well, that's kind of silly. And so John is hearing all this garbage, and he says, you know something, let's get it right back to the beginning. Let's, 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 let's put the logos where it needs to be. Let's put the word where it needs to be. Let's put it firmly on Jesus Christ. And so he's trying to bring it back. He's trying to take the imagery that the secular world had to try to define something that was false and try to use it to the best advantage we can. Now, I said all that to say this, that every year, every year I get the discussion, well, pastor, why do we celebrate Christmas in December? There's no way that Jesus was born in December. Well, I would agree with you. There is very little chance that Jesus actually was born on December 25th. I know it's going to shock some of you. We did let some of the kids go, so we're not, we're not going to strip away all of your presuppositions. But the truth of the matter is, very little chance, there's a small chance, very little chance that Jesus was actually born in December. But Jesus was born one day, right? Does anybody here actually know the day Jesus was born? No. No. Nobody knows. Does the majority of the world celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th? Yeah. So isn't it a smart idea if our goal is the Christian church, the representatives of Jesus here are the bringers of light, the, the, the image bearers of Christ himself, the church, if you will, the ones that are supposed to be talking about Jesus, lifting him up so that all men will be drawn to him, so that we can try to evangelize and save the lost world? Wouldn't it be smart to be able to use the day that they're already celebrating the birth of Christ and try to show what that really meant? that it wasn't just the birthday of a really cool kid. It was the entrance of God into real history. So that's my answer. That doesn't matter what day he was born. We're going to celebrate it on the 25th. And I find it ironic that they chose the 25th to do this because that's some of the darkest time in the, in this, in the northern hemisphere. This is dark. This is dark. All the way up through February, it's a dark, dark time. What better time to talk about the light of the world than in the darkest time in the calendar. It's really a phenomenal chance we have of sharing the love of Christ. So when, when John starts talking about the light and he starts talking about the word, he's drawing all of this in. He's trying to tie it all together because he wants us to recognize that the true light is Jesus Christ. You say, well, pastor, how do we know that? Well, if we jump over to chapter 1, verse 8, he says that. Talking about John the Baptist, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. In verse 9, he says, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as had received him, To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. Obviously, here we're talking about Jesus. Jesus was the true light. And so I find it interesting in this whole first 14 verses that John is showing the contrast between light and dark. He begins in the end of verse 1 by saying that the word was God. And in verse 14, he begins 
by saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about that to the kids. How in the world can, can we raise ourselves up to God? Oftentimes, my mind is drawn a lot to Genesis. I love Genesis. I study it quite often. I find a lot of the gospel message that we have in the New Testament is really echoes that we see coming away from and more, and more fully understanding the book of Genesis when we get into the New Testament. And so I think about the Tower of Babel, and I think about Nimrod and his group of individuals that were trying to build this tower. We don't, I still don't comprehend what he was going through his mind. Was he trying to build a safe place so that uh, if God ever tried to flood the earth again, he'd have a place to, to, to sit? Was he trying to reach heaven? I mean, there's a lot of really un, uh, things that we don't completely understand, but I can see the idea of trying to build this giant tower to try to reach up to God. And I, I thought to myself, well, I'd love to build a ladder. I'd love to build an elevator. I'd love to build something that could reach up there. But the truth is, none of us can. The only way we can reach heaven is for heaven or God to reach down and grab a hold of us. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he incarnated himself as a living, breathing human being, as he lived with us. So we have the contrast between this light and this dark. The Bible says that he became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now, this idea of light is carried all the way through um, John's gospel. John says in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 3, verse 19, he says, this is the judgment that the, uh, that the light has come into the world and the men love the darkness rather than the light. In John chapter 12, he says, uh, verse 36, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of the light. In chapter 12, verse 46, he continues, he says, I have come as a light into the world, and whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This idea of the light in the dark is always interplaying. And we ask ourselves, what's so special about this? And I would turn our attention to verse 5. This is the part that is really kind of funny. Remember I told you that Greek is decept- in, in John is, 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 very, is very easy to understand. It's very simple, you know, but it's also deceptive in that. You find that in chapter 5, and actually you find that in verse 5. You find this all through his gospel. John loves to throw these nuggets out there, and I think he did this just to irritate you know, Greek people like, that read Greek like myself um, because it really upsets us. It really causes problems with how we translate. So verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it according to the New American Standard. The New Living Translation, because I know my brother Mike likes to read that, it says the darkness can never extinguish it. The King James Version, because I love my brother Bill and I know he loves the King James, the King James says that the darkness can never comprehend, or sorry, the darkness comprehended it not. In the English Standard Version, it says that the darkness could not overcome it. Now, that's a wide range of thought in our translations. These are all English. Now, I know some of us that have our particular favorites, you know, and we love this version over this version, we'll say, we use this as an idea to say, well, obviously these other versions are pagan and wrong and and mistranslations and they're just completely out there, and you should never use that translation. You only use this one, right? So we just pick our favorite one, and we say, that's the one we like. Well, the truth of the matter is, they're all right. And that really irritates me. You would think John would be more specific in this. And, you know, there's probably reasons why John did this. But truth is, the word that is translated there could be, it could be extinguished, it could be comprehend, it could be overcome. It's a word to mean grasp. It's a word that that we're talking about. It says the light 
So where does it say, verse 5, it says, the darkness did not comprehend it. It's, it's the idea of grasping and holding on to it. The darkness couldn't grab a hold of the light. It couldn't hold it back. And so I, if you ask me my favorite translation of this word, it would be the darkness couldn't overcome it. Now, we're living in a dark world. And if you don't believe me, turn on the news. I mean, every week, every day sometimes, you get more and more things, more shootings, more issues, more problems, both in this country and beyond. And I often wonder how much longer God's going to put up with this. Last Sunday, we had an excellent testimony about what the abortion industry has done in this nation. I still have chills just thinking about it. Millions of people have been killed. This is a dark time in the history of mankind. Dark time. And I would be lying to say that if I, if I said anything other than that some days I wonder why God just doesn't come back, end it all. And in my dark times, when I struggle, I often wonder, if heaven is so great, Lord, why don't you just take me now? Maybe I'm the only one sitting in this room that, that feels that way. But I feel that way often. I want to go to heaven. One of my favorite singers growing up, he's dead now, his name is Jim Croce. He sang a song. I don't know if he wrote it or not. The song is Old Man River. And there's a, there's a quote in the song. And I know it says, well, what does this have to do with Hear me out. There's a quote in the song, a verse in the song, where he says that he's tired of living, but he's scared of dying. And I, I thought to myself, and I often think of that, that verse. And I wonder if that's how some of us are. And at some point, the fear of living will get too much, and the fear of dying will get too little. And maybe we won't be here anymore. Now, why are we asking all these things? Why are we bringing such dark concepts in here? Because that's what Jesus, that's what John wanted us to talk about. He wanted us to think what it was like if darkness would actually be able to overcome the light. I remember as a kid, I always had lots of questions from my parents. So much so that about age five or six, Phil, you'll appreciate this. About age five or six, my parents gave up. <laughs> they did. They just couldn't, couldn't do it. We didn't have the internet, didn't have YouTube, didn't have Google, and nothing, nobody really answered my questions. So my parents bought the Encyclopedia Britannica set and a few of these other really big tombs of null knowledge. And my parents would always ask me after I started asking these questions and they didn't have the answers anymore. They would say, well, what, is, what, is, what does Britannica say? And uh, that was their answer. And so I would have to go and try to, try to look up the answer and find it on my own. But I remember asking my dad how light works how light bulbs work, when I turn the switch on. How does the light work? My dad was an electrician. I figured that's an easy one, right? He ought to be able to know this. This is an easy one. I'm softballing my dad because I don't know, but I want to know what happens when I turn the light switch on and the light appears. And I'm like, ooh, light. This is before the, uh, the warm-up fluorescent bulbs and all in where you know, it takes a minute for them to get bright. I mean, turn the light on, incandescent, boom, there it is, light in the room. And I've already told you, I'm pretty scared. I was pretty scared of the dark as a kid. So this was kind of a really important question to me. I wanted to know. And so my dad got, a, got kind of funny and snarky with me because my father, you guys, some of you have met him. He was here about 
about a year and a half ago, and, and um, he can be kind of snarky, and, and he said to me, well, I'll tell you how a light bulb works. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, I almost want to pull out my notepad and write this down, you know. He goes, well, here it is. See, inside the light bulb, there's this special substance. Okay, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm right there. He goes, as soon as you turn it on, it's a dark magnet. I'm like, what? Because, yeah, you turn the light on, and it sucks all the nearby dark into it. I was five. <laughs> I'm like, there, gotcha. I'm writing that bad boy down. Imagine when I went to my teacher and I talked about that in school the next week. That did not go over so well. My father had to come back and apologize for being silly. But you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about that because dark cannot survive the light. And for a five-year-old who has no comprehension of electricity, tungsten, and all the other neat stuff that makes light happen, that fit with me. I'm like, dude, Yeah. The light is conquering the dark, and I can go into a a lit room knowing that the dark is contained, and I'm safe, right? Well, that's that's what Jesus is trying to, that's what John's trying to say to us about this, that the light cannot be overcome. The darkness can never overcome it. So when we talk about that first candle, and we talk about the idea that, that there's a hope. Gee, the Bible says that we should, we should be prepared at any moment to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. This is a powerful thing. What is that hope? The hope is that the light of the world, which is Jesus Christ, has come, and the darkness has no way to overcome it. No way. The sad part is we keep trying to bring the dark in. We do. This church has been beleaguered and battered from its very inception to this very day. The enemy has done his very best to try to batter it, bruise it, beat it down, destroy it from the outside. And so, you know, the funny thing is that the more the enemy pounds us from the outside, the stronger we get, you know. And, and so at some point in the history of the church, you know, the enemy kind of figured that out, right? He hasn't let up. Don't get me wrong. He hasn't let up. He's still pounding on the outside of our doors. He's still banging on us. But this is the worst part about it is he knows that the church, just like my brother pointed out, is infested with flawed people infested. Bruce, we need to get rid of that infestation. There's got to be a glue trap somewhere that will keep out all the, all the sinners, right? That'd be fun. Mary, <laughs> can imagine trying to walk into that building, right? You walk in and like the entire church is stuck on a glue trap just looking at each other. What do we do? Because there's nobody in here. There's nobody in here that's not a sinner. And the problem is we bring that sin in with us. We bring our sin nature in, and, and, we, and it comes out in the craziest ways. It comes out in, in a variety of manners. Sometimes it comes out in the best intentions. What do they say? The, the, the road to hell is paved with the best intentions? People bring them inside, and that's what the enemy loves to do. And he talks about this. The, the light shines and the darkness did not comprehend it. Look what it says in the other areas. It says that the world that was made through him, the world did not know him. The world did not know him. He says, those that remain in darkness do not understand. They cannot comprehend what it means to have light. But he goes on. In verse 4, he says, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. And this is pretty powerful if you think about it. I think uh, just recently, and Phil, you can correct me if I'm wrong, just recently they actually had a, built a camera that could film the very moment 
that the two single cells join together and become a zygote. Am I correct, Phil? Have they just recently done this? And I remember watching a video on this. Maybe it's not that recent. Maybe it's, I just found it. I don't know. I'm a little slow to the game, right? So, but I saw this the other day, and I thought this was phenomenal because it doesn't just happen. It's not like the little, the little, man, uh, the little man cell comes up and just says, oh, I think I'm going to hang out with this, with this egg cell, and then all of a sudden, woo, we're now staying together. It's actually a little bit more than that. And when it actually happens, there's like this, this almost like a flash of light. It's like it just, whoa, an explosion of heat and energy, and it just, boom, right? And then all of a sudden, they just one cell becomes two, and then three, and then three, and five, and 12, and, ah, it's just, and all of a sudden, you have babies with fingers and eyes and nose and toes and all the really fun and cool stuff, but it starts and has that spark of light. It's just a beautiful thing. And if you don't recognize the fact that that's when life begins, and you're insane, it's a beautiful moment. And the Holy Spirit just sparks in there and something happens. And I don't completely understand it. Scientists don't completely understand it, but it's there nonetheless. And in him was the life and the light of men. And John didn't know all that stuff. But the Holy Spirit that was whispering in John's ear as he was writing did. Life and light are inexorably tied. You can't have one without the other. And this is how we know that the light will not be put out, that the darkness cannot overcome it. He says, all things came into being, being through him in verse four, verse three, and that apart from him, nothing came into being that is in being. I know it's a, a lot of beings in that sentence. The word being there is a Greek word, gynomia. It means it's the same word we get gy, uh, gynecology and all that other stuff. And it, it talks about that creation. And, and it gives the idea in Greek of a creation out of nothing. And so when John is using this multiple times about being, he's talking about creating out of nothing. It says nothing came into being without Jesus' first interaction. He touched, he moved, he breathed, he wiggled, he caused the universe to come into being. He brought life into our existence. He is the reason we are here. And then he says in verse 2, in the beginning he was with God. And that's a pretty powerful statement too. Because up to this point in the history of the church, the history of, and I'm talking about the Jewish history of the church leading up to when Jesus was here, there was no understanding of the Trinity. If you asked a Jewish person back in the days of Abraham and beyond, you would even ask Moses. Moses is a pretty bright guy. If you asked Moses about the Trinity, he'd look at you. He wouldn't know what, because the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible. We're talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three parts in one. Do I understand it? No. Do I accept it? Yes. John is talking about that. There is something about not being, he's not just saying he was God, but he was also with God. In the beginning, when nothing was, the word was there. There's a beautiful picture of intimacy tied up into that Greek language. Just being with someone. Lately, Sandy and I have been watching TV together. And sometimes we watch things that I like. And sometimes we watch things that she likes. Um, and she always gets frustrated because it seems like when she puts things on that she likes, I disappear because I'm not really interested in some of the things that she likes. And sometimes she'll even click off what she's watching to put on the news because she knows I like that just so that I can be with her. And she gives up that, the, her shows just so she can, because she really wants to be. And she says, you know, you can watch the news with me. I want to watch with you. I want to be with you. There's something, even though we're not talking to each other, even though we're not looking at each other, there's something special about just being there with each other. 
And that's a pretty amazing thing if you think about it. And that's just between a husband and wife. We're two separate beings, two separate people. We have different ideas, different thoughts, different dreams. And we've come together. We're trying to do what every married couple is doing, become one flesh so that we can become completely united. And it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in 10 years. My brother Bill, how, you what, 50-something years now? I think Mark says it was 56 years. That's a long time, brother. You know, are you completely there? Are you 100%? No, you're not. It's, it doesn't happen overnight. Even in 50 years, it doesn't happen. But it will eventually. And I know as we grow closer together, the idea of spending time together is truly amazing. And this is the image that we have of the light, the word with God, is the idea that there's that interconnection, that intimate partnership that we can't possibly understand but it's there. Now, all this, it can be summed up by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. It can be summed up when Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, once you were in darkness, but you're now you're in the light. The Lord, you're in the light. The Lord walks with us, and we are to walk as the children of light. That's a pretty powerful thing. The enemy is the enemy. We know what his motivations are. And I think when we talk about unity and we talk about what God really wants from his body, he wants us to remember that we're flawed creatures. We make mistakes. He wants us to focus on the light. He wants us to recognize that while we're yet sinners, he still died for us. He wants us to recognize that as we are now growing in light and love of his word, as we move further in his call to us, that we are to do that hand in hand with him, putting aside the darkness that pervades in this world and walk as the children of light. And this is what Paul was encouraging us. This is what Jesus encouraged, encouraged us. And this is the goal that every one of us has. And I know some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, we've talked a lot about light, we've talked a lot about the word. What if I don't know Jesus? What if I've never had that point? Now, I'm looking out here, and I'm seeing most everybody in here I recognize. Most of you I know, um, I've had long conversations with you. And I would say that if, if it were up to me, and I know, Mike, you'd probably feel the same way, um, that if it were up to us, we'd probably just say everybody in this building can go to heaven. I think that's fair, right? I think it's a good plan. If you're basing your salvation on what Al Wink thinks, then I think that you're safe. You're good to go. I'll give you the ticket. In fact, right after the service is over with, I'll even handwrite it out. That way you can have like a paper receipt that says you get to go to heaven. I mean, that's what they did in the Middle Ages, right? They gave out uh, indulgences. You know, you pay a certain amount of money to the church and you, you get, your, um, get your free ticket to heaven. We can do that. I have no problem with that. And I can just see you walking into heaven, holding out that ticket that Al Week signed, saying, hey, Jesus, got my ticket. And you see Jesus even maybe looking at that ticket saying, oh, let me see that for a minute, you know? Because he may be scratching it, holding it up to the light, looking for the watermark, I don't know, looking for something. And I can just see him giving it back and say, you know something? I don't think so. And you can say, well, Jesus, didn't I do this, this, and this? And he's going to say, yeah, yeah, you may have, but I don't know you. And so, Pastor, where's that found in Scripture? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked that. It said, Jesus himself said, there will come a day. When people will come into my kingdom and they will say, have I not done great miracles in your name? Have I not preached great sermons? Have I not done great things? And Jesus is going to look them in the eye and he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. So I don't want that to happen to anybody. 
So don't base your salvation on what Al Weeks thinks. Base your salvation on what Jesus says. Jesus says, I've come that you may believe. Believe that I am truly the Son of God. And it starts in what my friend Mike said in the beginning. I'm a flawed creature. I'm a sinner. There was a day not too long ago. Well, I say not too long ago. Now it was like 20, 30 something years ago. And I remember that day clearly. It was December 2nd, 1984. We'd just gone through a revival. It was one of the greatest revivals I ever went through. It was the first revival I ever went through, so I guess it was the greatest, right? We had this fire and brimstone revivalist that came in. He was, he was, just, he was just preaching his heart out. Five days. This is back in the day when we did five-day revivals. Now we can get people to get together for three days. But, but five-day revivals, every night we were in that building. We were there till 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, preaching and singing and praying and having a great time. And the entire week went by and not a single person came down front to be saved. Not one person. That revivalist went away thinking he was the worst revivalist he's ever had. It was horrible. But all that began, it began it, it just, all we needed was a crack in the wall. And believe it or not, and Bill, I know you appreciate this, it was, it was one of our deacons. One of our deacons, Saturday morning, after the revival was over with, we had to get the church ready for all the guests that were going to come post-revival, right? And he was out there with the weed whacker in his cut-off jean shorts and a fireball in his mouth, weed whacking the church. And I know many of you have heard this story. I've shared it lots of times. And God just hit him like a thunderbolt. He said, you're lost and going to hell. And I, mean, I remember he said to me, he said, it was, it was, it was, he, he remember turning to God and saying, that's not possible, God. I'm a deacon in the church. I grew up in this church. I was a youth in this church. Now I teach the youth in this church. He said the Holy Spirit told him he was lost. He went right into the pastor's office, said, I need to get saved. Pastor led him through salvation the next morning in Sunday school. He shared that same story with me, and then it just moved me, and I knew at that moment I was lost. Sunday morning after the preacher got finished preaching, and I said to myself, as soon as he says amen from the prayer, I'm going to be the first one down front. And I remember he said amen. I'm sitting right on the front row. I didn't even have a, a pew filled to hold on to. There was no white knuckling at that point. There was nothing stopping me, right? Yeah. He said, amen. I took like a third of a half of a quarter of a possible step. I didn't move. I was scared, slapped to death. No one moved. And we sang our obligatory two, maybe three, three verses. I forget how many. It was just as I am, you know. Just as I am. Da, 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 da. And then we sang the song. And about the end of the thing, the, the, the deacon that shared his testimony in Sunday school, he came down front and said, Pastor, can I, can I, can I share? Then he let him. And he shared the same story I just shared to you. And it was almost as though, I don't know what it was, the spirit just completely collapsed walls. And I had to fight. I was in the front row. But I had to fight my way to the altar. Because there was too many people there. It was the most amazing experience I ever had in my life. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, God saved my soul. And from that day to this day, I've done everything I can to bless him and to serve him. Not always been good at it. Sometimes I fail miserably. But the goal is not if I fail, it's when I fail, I get back up and keep moving for him. So this morning, if you don't know Christ, your personal Savior, if you've never actually taken a moment to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I cannot get to heaven on my own. There's no bridge I can build, no ladder I can climb, no elevator I can get into to get myself to heaven. Only you can bring me there. 
if you're willing to, to make that statement, if you're willing to pray that prayer, if you're willing to, to believe in your heart that he died for your sins, that he, he was buried in the ground, and after three days he rose from the grave, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. If you can believe those things and repent of your sin, I have no doubt in my mind that God will save you and welcome you into his heaven. And when you get to heaven, you're not holding a ticket signed by me. And he asks you these questions. He says, why should I let you into my heaven? You can simply say, because I believe that your son died for me. Because I was a sinner and I could not get there on my own. And he will say, welcome, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. This is what we look forward to. This is what it is all about. So this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I encourage you, the altar is open. If you do, then I encourage you, just as Paul said to the Ephesians, walk. Walk as a child of the light so that other people can see Christ's light within you and be drawn to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, we know that you are truly our glorious and amazing Savior. Father, we know that we can't get to heaven without you. Father, we know that in this Advent season when we're talking about your Son entering into real history, we can't help but talk about the light that is the light of men, you, the Word, the Word made flesh. Father, we ask that you will just encourage us, strengthen us, and in those of us that know you and love you well, that are your servants in what we do and say, Father, I ask that you will guide us and direct us and bring us into contact with people that need to know your message of love, life, hope, and peace. And Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that's sitting there truly in darkness, that does not comprehend it, that does not recognize what it is, Father, I ask that you will not let them leave here today without seeing your light shine in their life. Father, I ask that you'll bring them here into this altar and, and allow them to get their eternal security taken care of this morning, that they can get up and leave this room knowing that they have a place secured for them in heaven. Father, I just ask that you guide and direct us and help us to be you, your servants here in this place as we seek to know you and love you more. Father, I love you and I praise you and I thank you so much for saving my soul. And we ask that you go before each and every one of us this week. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll stand for the hymn of invitation.